Hi, thanks for listening to my podcast. Let me introduce you with Jane Milton. I've been working with food businesses for 35 years and now I'm taking you behind the scenes in my business to connect with some of the great specialists, entrepreneurs and producers that we work with to hear how we create strategies that inspire business and how we help them create the perfect teams for specific projects and for their business as it grows so that they can get great results faster and much more cost effectively with our support than they would on their own. I truly believe the food industry in the UK has some of the best people in it and I'm lucky enough to know and work with the very best of those. Let me introduce you to Kristen Fredrickson, a writer who's also a very passionate cook and now an accomplished sourdough bread baker. Kristen and I are both members of the Guild of Food Writers and through their wonderful Facebook forum, are we still allowed to call it that? I have gotten to know little bits about her food shopping, her volunteer work with a food-related charity, her second book, which she cooked over 39 days in the lockdown, making two meals a day, and which her daughter did the recipe photography for. I've also seen her master sourdough bread making and then take her starter to the States when she travelled and then move home in the UK and get some different results from her bread because of that. Kristen's love of food and people shines throughout in all her writing and her conversations. And I really think you'll enjoy listening to this podcast episode as much as I enjoyed making it with her. Can I ask you to tell me how you describe what it is that occupies your day that you do for a living and and the combination of where that came from? And I am uh, first and foremost, I would say a writer. I am members communication director for the Guild of Food Writers, which is how you and I know each other. And that means I manage our Facebook forum. I monitor and moderate the Facebook forum where we ask and answer millions of questions. And I am... And really help each other, which I love. You know, what a collaborative, unafraid group of people to help each other, which is very rare when you all work on in a field that is related in some way. I think it's lovely. Yeah, I mean, I don't Google anything yeah. anymore because you yeah. enter a question into the forum and within 15 minutes, you've got the three world's experts on vinegar, you know, telling you the answer to your question. So the forum is great. I also uh, have a hand in editing the Guild monthly newsletter. Newsletter. And, uh, and I'm a writer. So I've, I've written two cookbooks and one, one that appeared this summer. And... Then I would say, alongside being a writer, I'm a very enthusiastic cook. I'm not a trained cook, but I, uh, I cook. Because you every studied day. history of art. I studied history of art. I have a dark past as a professor of the history <laughs> of art, and um, actually wrote wrote, wrote a book about art history um, back in the day. So I've always just really liked the idea of doing something I care about, like cooking, and then framing it in words. And I really yep. don't feel that I've fully lived a thing until I've framed it in some kind of structure of words. So um, it was just natural then to, to write recipes. And so your blog started? Yes, I started my blog when we moved here from New York in 2005. And the the blog was called just simply Kristen in Lo- London. And it was my adventures here with my family. I had a small daughter and my husband. And... I 
wrote more and more about food, about food shopping, which in London is obviously just the most fun you can have. And food shopping, cooking, writing up the recipe. And then there's always, for my cooking, a story that goes along with it. Why, why do I care about this recipe? Why does it mean something to me and to my family? And so as I was writing my blog and doing all this stuff, my teenage daughter came into the kitchen for dinner and said, that's a terrible photo of that dish. And I looked at it and thought, oh, well, I guess it is sort of. And I said, well, you're willing, you're willing, welcome to <laughs> do a better job if you'd like to. And she said, well, I definitely can. And she had taken a couple of photography courses as a teenager and she started photographing my food. And very quickly we realized that we wanted to write a cookbook together. So along that, that trajectory, we have dinner together tonight or every night tonight at 7.30. And along the way, I came upon a poem by W.H. Auden, who's my favorite poet. Yeah. And this poem was called Tonight at 7.30. And it was a thank you note to the American food writer M.F.K. Fisher. A thank you for a dinner party that she'd invited him to. And he dedicated it to, to her tonight at 7.30. So it just seemed like kismet to, to name our cookbook that. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it was great. And we sat around, the three of us, my husband and my daughter and I, at our little house in America called Redgate Farm and brainstormed about how many dishes could we come up with that, that meant something to our family, that I cooked frequently that felt significant to us in some way. And without really even trying very hard, we came up with nearly a hundred. Which is lovely, isn't it? It's so nice. nice that there were so many of them. You know, that's great. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, well, this is probably enough, uh, really naively, this is probably enough for a cookbook. And of course, it turned out that it was a perfectly good number of recipes. Mm. And so we um, made sure we had photographs of all of all of them. And that became Tonight at 7.30, my, my first cookbook. And the subtitle is, is One Family's Life at the Table, which is just purely simply what the cookbook is about, is our family's life yep. at the table with family and friends. And, and then she went off to Oxford and I carried on writing recipes, but obviously with no one to photograph them. And I didn't give it much thought until she moved back after you know, her, her three years away and she felt quite keen that she wanted to contribute something to our household, the way our household ran. But she was, you know, obviously not being paid very much in her first job. And she said, what else could I do to be useful? And we both just thought, well, let's just do volume two of the cookbook. Brilliant. So we proceeded very slowly at first because she was working full time and I had other things to do. And then coronavirus happened. And I realized that she was stuck living in our house for the foreseeable future. And I said to her, let's just make this second volume happen. Let's make this cookbook happen. So we sat down with a list of recipes and she had very strong feelings that were, there were some dishes that the, the readers would not feel comfortable cooking it unless they could see the finished dish. See the picture. P see the picture. So like, uh, Oddly, there are a lot of pictures of soup, which aren't really all, all that necessary to see the picture, but she's very talented at photographing soup. 
So she made a list of, or she ticked the recipes that she insisted there be a photograph of the finished dish. And then the others, she gave me and my husband permission to illustrate with photographs of either the main ingredient or a shot of Borough Market where we used to do all our shopping or a shot of the person who inspired the recipe. So all the finished dishes are photographed by her and the rest we filled in as best we could. And yourselves. Yeah. And the, the crazy, the craziest accomplishment of the pandemic was that she had identified, I think, 39 dishes that she wanted to photo. No, I'm getting that wrong. For 39 straight days, I cooked something different for each lunch and each dinner. And she took a beautiful picture. So that's nearly 80, right? It was just so unreal. unreal. It was so much work. And in the middle of the pandemic, to get all the shopping together and things is just incredible. They're not unrealistic recipes to cook. And so um, it was not difficult to get the ingredients, whether by mail order or, you know, on our one day, Mm. one a trip outside a day shop. One trip out. Yeah. So we ended up um, cooking late into those beautiful summer uh, nights of that, the pandemic summer and came up with book number two, which is called Second Helpings, which I think is kind of funny. Which is a lovely name. So we're very, it came out in July and we're very happy. And the two of them are sister. I think of them as sisters. The two books look quite similar and Often I see them in people's yeah. houses. And just that by lovely side. history of your your family and things too, which is superb. Yeah, you it know, was lovely. It's a lovely legacy. Piece I, to I think have. of it as a legacy. Yes, I do. When the first yeah. volume came out, she had turned eighteen, and I had turned fifty, and the book was published. And I kind of thought, well, I could get hit by a bus now. You know, I've kind of done it. <sighs> And, and she'll have she'll have some recipes. To yeah, cook. she'll have some recipes. <laughs> and then I feel the same with volume two. And I keep saying like hashtag no volume three because it's just such an exhausting thing to do. But mm. but now we've got both volumes, and I feel very very satisfied. You'll, you'll forget at some point how bad that was, and <laughs> then you'll think you might do a third one. Yeah, Stop it's me, funny. Jane. My mum's books that I know the book that my mum writes recipes in um a lot of which actually are baking and things like that she has a book that you know is a handwritten book and and she actually a few oh maybe 20 years ago now she rewrote it because she said it was just so revolting because all the pages were splattered with stuff and everything but we we call that book scratch and sniff because you can tell (laughs) which recipes are used most by the amount of food that's on them but but predominantly baking and I love that because mum will have written who gave her the recipe and you know somebody else will have made a recipe mum will have said she liked it and then she'll have given it to mum and and I similarly as I've moved around have met people and they've given me recipes and I have mine are all on the computer but it says you know Jean Fisher's something or somebody else and and some of those people are not here anymore oh I know but we still have those recipes and they're lovely you know and it's a really nice thing to associate them back to somebody so to have those family meals and because my dad was not a particularly adventurous eater and also believed that every meal had to have meat and two vegetables in it to be a meal and he would travel for work and when he traveled my mum would make pizza or things that he found acceptable we still laugh too because in Scotland 
there's a company called Marshalls who made the pasta that right. people in Scotland ate. Predominantly macaroni. Macaroni cheese is a big mm. popular thing for some reason. And the packaging was tartan. So my father believed that pasta <laughs> was a British Scottish. thing. Scottish thing probably even more if we really dug in deeply. But even then, macaroni cheese would have to have ham in it to count as a meal. Of course. And so you would you would have chopped up ham in it or, or something like that. And but we ate more adventurously if he wasn't around, I probably. But there were a few recipes that my mum somehow managed to get under, under the, radar. the radar. There was one that I loved growing up of, of him. Yeah, completely. There was one called African beef stew, Ooh. which had peanut butter in it in the days when the only peanut butter in the UK would have been Sunpat. You know, and it was quite and, and it was from a Sonia Allison book called The Love of Cooking. And she, I don't know why, but for some reason, mum had got hold of that book. And so occasionally things from that would come out. But but it's just funny, isn't it? But, you know, as soon as I taste any of those kind of African peanutty stew things, I'm right back at that recipe. So it's lovely that you have that book of recipes that it embed you back in, in those family meals as soon as you have them. Well, and, and too, I think uh, we were not, not a family and during my childhood we were not a family that appreciated food my mother hated to cook which is actually a blessing in disguise because that's how i learned to cook was self-preservation if i wanted to eat something i enjoyed i was going to have to produce it myself so as a sort of 10 year old i was just given free reign in the supermarket and the kitchen to make whatever i liked and it was very much appreciated my mother was very happy to handle hand over the responsibility to me and I enjoyed doing it right th- through high school until I moved away to uni and then to graduate school where I was either fed by some awful cafeteria or I ate cereal because I didn't have any money or whatever and so I didn't really yep. um, cook pro- properly again until I was a young married girl of 24 and I had someone to feed and it just became the greatest joy of my life was to to feed someone and I, I still feel that way and shop for it that's and, right and all the interest that you gained in the food then that's incredible it's super really lovely and your grandparents and your so your mum you say wasn't interested in cooking but with with your grandparents were they interested you know did it come from further back in your family well my mother's mother hated to cook as well and I suppose that's how she passed it along to my mother, she just cooked because she had to feed her family. So I got no inspiration from my mother's mother. But my yep. father's mother, who in most ways was not a very nice lady, was actually a re- really super <laughs> Norwegian cook. And she went on her kind of infrequent visits to us. The nicest time I ever spent with her and the nicest we ever saw her as a person was when she and I were in the kitchen together. And she she had no Isn't that lovely. Yeah, she didn't have a daughter. My father was an only child, and of course, back then you wouldn't teach your son to cook, would you? In the forties, so so she and I spent time in the kitchen no, cooking some not. yeah some Norwegian specialties. The main one that I remember being called a tea ring, and it was a a yeasted pastry yes with um, lots of butter and cinnamon and raisins, twisted not braided like a challah but twisted and then turned into mm-hmm. a like a pie tin 
and and baked in That's a so circle. Cool. Yeah, and it was just yeah. divine. I should make that again sometime. I haven't thought about that dish in years, but I should try it mm. again. Good, good. Oh, no, that, that all sounds wonderful. I'm enthused by all of that. What kind of first impression do you think you leave with people when they meet you at first? Oh, I'm pretty sure it's friendly. Um, I think um, one of the things that I do, well, actually, one of, one of the, how to phrase it, the, the thing that occupies most of the time that I don't spend cooking or writing is I'm a volunteer in lots of different organizations here in London. And they're all people-oriented volunteer positions. So one of them is a, a volunteer pediatric social work charity where I get to go into people's houses and look after their little kids um, for a few hours a week. And then we do, we work, my husband and I both work with a charity called Plan Zeros at Borough Market that matches up traders at the markets, extra food with food um, needy charities, whether it's homeless shelters or uh, refuges for Which is brilliant, women. isn't it? Yeah. It's a, I, I, I've read some of your posts on the Guild. It's just, it's yeah, such an incredible... I've read some of your posts on the Guild about that and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's an amazing organization and it's it's every Wednesday evening at Burr Market and it's just our most favorite just hours of the week is because you, you can have this tangible effect on not only no waste, like you take these giant deliveries of food that otherwise would yep. be binned, binned, and you actually mat- match them up with Which real people who come from the charities and you put this food into their hands and they walk away with it and you don't bin it. It's an amazing plan zero. And they're delighted by it. Yeah. And yeah. It's, but I'm, going back to your question, I think that what binds all these opportunities together for me is that I'm, I'm quite a friendly person and I really lo- like to do things that involve and you're interested in people, yes, which is lovely. Very much yeah. so. It's a friendly cookbook, actually. My yeah. cookbooks are friendly, <laughs> so that's probably the word. Mm. Yeah, it's good. No, that's that all. That you know, I can I can see that even from your entries on the Guild Facebook page and things. So I'm not at all surprised about that. Right. Who do you think you've learned from? Who are your role models in? how you live your life, how you work, those kind of interactions that you have with people. Are there people that you, you've you seen them doing things and you think, what is it about them that I like? Or, and I always say at this point, if there are people that you've learned how you don't want to do things from, you can talk about what you learned, but you can't <laughs> talk about the person. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, a couple of people leap to mind. One that I never met and I wish I had. She was a novelist and a food food writer in New York City in the 70s and 80s and 90s called Laurie Colwyn. And she wrote a column for Gourmet Magazine for many, many years. And then she collated them into two cookbooks, one called Home Cooking and, and the next called More Home Cooking. And she's just a brilliant <laughs> writer, just a brilliant novelist, a brilliant viewer of people and their idiosyncrasies. And it was my dream in life to meet her someday. And I was, I was going to reach out to her and, and then she died suddenly at age 48. And I thought, Oh, oh I've no. just let that go. But I, but she's inspired all my writing and, and most of my cooking. And then, and then in the real world, I would say uh, when I was a newlywed, I made a, a lifelong friend in my friend, Cynthia and her mother 
was the best host I've ever met in my life. One of those people, I'd never been to a dinner party when I was 24 years old. And she invited us and we would sit around with crystal and fancy wine and, and silver and a tablecloth. And, but the most important thing was Jean at the head of the table, making everyone feel more intelligent than they really were. And really, um, significant and entertaining drawing out the best drawing out the best in everyone and making it all seem effortless and um and I thought I want to do that how lovely yes it was lovely so for the rest of her life she she died sadly just before my first cookbook came out and it was dedicated to her and it it was just she was just such an inspiration Mm. to to me and to my family and um when my daughter was born her new name became Jean Mommy so she was everyone's Gee, so I didn't my mother d- doesn't mind the fact that I say she wasn't a good cook and all of that but um but she she was kind of a second mother to me Jean was and, and taught me how to be a host and how to make people feel, feel welcome yeah. And so yeah those are people that I think of every day about that's know. lovely isn't it that yeah. you've got a lot from definitely yeah. these are lovely stories too People say, you know, too much of this is never enough. Like, it wouldn't matter how much champagne some people had, it would never be enough for them. Or oysters or, you know, just too much time on my own to read or, you know, there's no such thing as as enough of it. What is the thing that makes you feel like that? You know, I thought about this and to be honest, the first superficial idea that came into my mind was butter. And then actually really close close in line behind butter was a scottish person i'm so with you on that (laughs) but actually it's time spent with my daughter because i knew obviously all her life that she was going to grow up and we wouldn't share a home for the rest of our lives but it didn't really hit with me until it happened and now i find myself just begging like I'll, i'll say has it been long enough that i can say oh can i come over and so it's really just time now spent spent looking at the adult that she's is she far from you now she is about a 20 minute uber ride or or um it's actually not very convenient to public transport anymore but she lives in in a southeast part of london and we do get to see each other not as much as i would like to but i think about my mother you know, dealing with my being 3,500 miles away and I couldn't do it. I just don't think I could manage Mm. it. So yeah, every bit of time that we get to spend together is a gravy, right? Yep. I'm 500 miles from my mum and that's bad enough. And we speak at least twice a day. Oh, how nice. We speak twice a day, but I very often say to her, I'd like to drop in for coffee now you know I wish that I could just come around the corner and have a coffee or absolutely but we pre just at the at at the beginning of lockdown we got those Amazon Alexa shows so that I can see her on a screen and she can see me and they've been amazing and because we can and she it literally you say to it drop in so by pre-arrangement you know 
I allow her access to my phone number and she allows me. And so because of that, she can just drop in and it plays this little bit of music. And then I know my mother's about to appear in the kitchen. That's so nice. And, and in she comes. And, and it, that's been brilliant because just to be able to see each other and that's makes right. it feel less like we're not seeing each other. So it's been really good. I do. I enjoy that. No, I agree. I agree with you. My daughter mm. and I text back and forth a lot. Um, texting has been quite um, a gift dur- during the pandemic. And um, even my mother has learned to text. So quite often late at night because it's she's five. Uh, yeah, she's five hours, obviously, earlier than I am. So by lying in bed at 11 or 12 at yeah. night, it's just early evening for her. And we text back and forth. So and um, and my daughter's pretty good about keeping me updated she has a new beautiful cat and i require many updates as to the well-being of this cat so yeah yeah it's good quite right good good uh, what have you done that when you look back now surprises you that where you've really sort of stepped outside your comfort zone or done something that you never would have thought would be something you would do Although it sounds like you've done lots like that. What what is the thing that springs to mind? The thing that surprised ev- everyone who knows me is learning to bake sourdough. Um, because I'm not a baker. Mm. I'm not a baker by any stretch of the imagination. I don't like cooking that requires following rules. And And so it was just, it was very surprising. But I was on a holiday with our mutual friend, Orlando Murren, the president of our guild. And I was on holiday and he had recently been converted to sourdough. So he brought not only his starter and we were together for three days. So over the course of those three days, he showed us all of our group of friends, the whole process, the 24 hour process of making a loaf of sourdough bread. So we watched, it was a masterclass. We watched the whole thing. And then at the end of the holiday, he gave each of us who wanted it a portion of his starter. So he sent this home with me and I could not, I could not, I could not do it. I I couldn't make head nor tail out of it by myself. I killed his starter, which was really hard to confess. And he, he called it my sourdough drop box that is a bit like having somebody's pet that's to look right. after. exactly he called it my sourdough drop box facial expression because i claimed i couldn't understand drop box either and he said you know Kristen, i am not going to be satisfied with you as a person until you learn to use drop box and make a loaf of sourdough bread it's important for your character so i really put myself into it and this is pre-pandemic this is about three or four years ago and gradually over just dogged, dogged persistence, I can now make a really pretty darn good loaf of sourdough. Bread. And I've seen the evidence. And now I see you traveling to the States and taking your starter with you. And it's amazing. It's superb. Well, and over the course of, over the pandemic, when everybody was you know bored, I had two friends in London whom I shared my starter with in these like like spy drop-offs in a park somewhere. Like I'd leave it on a bench and then they'd go pick it up. Yes. And then by text and photographs and videos and phone consultations, I walked these two friends of mine through making a loaf of sourdough bread with my starter. And somehow their first shot out of the gate was perfect. And I thought, 
I'm a much better teacher than I am a student, obviously, because they didn't, <laughs> they had no trouble. And then I actually... Met- Are they people who bake already? Did they bake stuff or did it just come from nowhere they, during the They pandemic? were like yeast bakers, which is very, very predictable. Right. Like you don't make a mistake yes. with, with yeast and sourdough is much, much less predictable. So yep. they made their loaves and then I sent dehydrated starter to a friend in San Francisco who then rehydrated it and and I walked him through the process and he made his sourdough and then my mom has a lady who comes and cooks for for her once a week and I taught her to make sourdough so oh my goodness so I've got these little tendrils of my sourdough experience out there in the world and it's the most satisfying thing and so so it's yeah it's totally outside my comfort zone and something nobody who knew me would have said I would ever embark on but now it's the most requested gift if I go visit someone for a yeah. dinner party or I always, bring me a loaf absolutely I always bring my daughter a loaf and um we got there the last oh. time and there was a- and she hasn't she hasn't volunteered to make it no she's she not. has not she has no not at all I think which is surprising it surprises me because she loves to eat it so much but She's, mm-hmm. she's a very, very good cook now, but she has, no, she has not caught the sourdough bug. Yet. <laughs> and have you mastered Dropbox? I have to ask. <laughs> I'm so good at Dropbox. And I can also do WeTransfer and AirDrop. And Orlando's so proud of oh, me now. I know. AirDrop I love. AirDrop I just love. I love I when, love AirDrop. It's when stuff goes between my phone and my computer. How do we live without these things? Oh, yeah. I know. Oh, and off, off it goes and there it is. I know, that's lovely. Now, this one is one that I ask other people and they have to think about, but I think the problem for you may be how many things you can think about. What is the best thing you've eaten recently? And it can be something you've made. It can be an ingredient you bought. It can be a meal you had somewhere else. I'm going to say that it's my one regret about volume two of my cookbook is that I did not have this recipe when I published it. And that is deep fried soft shell crabs. Oh Oh my goodness. They're in a, first it's in a, it's in a corn flour dredging and then it's in an eggy creamy wash. And then it's in a panko tempura, Bat, you know, battery thing, not batter, it's a, it's dry, tempura and panko that's flavored with Chinese five spice and a, a Japanese pepper blend and turmeric. And then you, oh, oh then gorgeous. you deep fry them for just about, I don't know, five minutes or so, turning them over once. And with a little bit of spicy shiraka mayo, oh, best, yeah. best thing ever. And where did you first taste that or where did that come from or did you just make it no, up? Well, I remember my first taste of, of social crabs at all very vividly. When my little girl was mm. a little girl, she had um, Friday afternoon ice skating lessons in Queensway in London's mm. Bayswater neighborhood and directly opposite this horrible skating rink where I spent every Friday afternoon of my life was a restaurant called the Mandarin Kitchen. And mm-hmm. by the time I survived the skating lesson, I was in such a bad mood that all I wanted was to, for someone to feed me. So it became the tradition that every Friday evening we'd go across the road and go to the Mandarin kitchen and they did oh. soft shell crabs and what they called just salt and pepper. And I think that was about all it was. Yes. But this flavor combination with the Chinese five spice and the Japanese pepper blend, it's just 
so tasty, so, so, so yummy. And you save the oil from one time to the next. So that like a yes. restaurant, a restaurant is not. So that you use it. Yeah. You get all those added flavors. And if you want, you can leave behind the little crispy bits, but you don't have to, you can reuse those too. So that's my, yeah. my go-to um, pretend. Well, that sounds good. That's definitely one for volume three. I hate to tell <laughs> you. No but... volume three. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh yeah. I know. That's coming. It is definitely. That's great, isn't it? We in in Ealing, which is quite near me, there is um, quite a big Japanese community, and there's a great little Japanese restaurant called Kiraku, which is full of uh, Japanese people eating in it. Mm. And when I first went there, they had no English on their menu, um, menu oh. but they have now. They've kind of adapted to weird folk like us. And they have little pictures of things that you have an idea of what it is. And then a very light description. Rudimentary. But they make sushi from scratch there, among other things. There's also Sushi Hero next to it, which is lovely. But they do a soft shell crab sushi. And that blew my mind because, you know, the the crab is warm and the rice is cool. Yeah. And just that, that they've got that all in there and you just know how fresh it is and everything. There's a cool, there's a a great... um, well, I don't know if they do them anymore because it's such close quarters, but there's a restaurant in London. There are two locations that I know of called Kulu Kulu. That's a conveyor belt sushi bar. Ah, yes. So yeah, it passes yeah. you by and you just reach out and grab it. And that's, Pick out what you that's want. where yeah. I first had a soft shell crab hand roll. So it was soft shell crab, yeah. rice, avocado, spicy mayo, seaweed. Oh, so yummy. I was really delicious. The last time we had soft shell crabs last, I guess, earlier this week, um, my husband and I were talking about maybe doing a little sushi project with with them the next time. So I live right around the corner yeah. from a, a sweet new um, Asian supermarket and deep in their freezer section are boxes of soft shell crabs. Oh, brilliant. Great style. Normally, I ask about business books and personal development books and things that you've read. But I think, I mean, we've had a little chat about your cookbooks. But um, I'm going to ask you, from both books, can you tell me one recipe that you think embodies that book? What is your utter favourite recipe in, in the books? Can you pull those out? Absolutely can Yes, I can. Um, from volume volume one, I say, I say volume one. From tonight at seven thirty, it's definitely a, a recipe I adapted from my elderly friend Jean. It's called chicken pujarski, and when she made it, it was from the New York Times. Oh, Craig Claiborne in the fifties or sixties, I want to say, did an art- article about a Russian. I think it was near St. Petersburg. A Russian a chop house and they served these deep fried chicken breast cutlets but the point of the whole recipe was a sauce that's chicken stock brandy sour cream paprika and fresh thyme and garlic really thick pink sauce so she mm. served this dish to me many many times and then i had this brain wave a few years ago that what i really wanted was chicken meatballs in that sauce so I, I went from the chicken breast to putting chicken thighs through a mincer, mixing it with... Which is much more Oh, tasty. so tasty. Yeah. Mixing it with a panko whole milk 
kind of porridgey stuff and you make really soft meatballs that poach in this paprika sauce. <gasps> Chicken meatballs, Pozarski is, p- people have told me it's worth the purchase of the whole book just to get that recipe. That is that's the one it's then. It's the one. Yep. It is the one. And for second helpings, for volume two, I'm going to say the dish that I'm going to serve a rather famous guest tomorrow night at a dinner party, which is called yellowtail rice bowls. And you get yellowtail tuna and you steam sushi rice and then you obsessively chop loads of pickled and fresh vegetable garnishes. And then you sear your tuna steaks just barely just barely in a little bit of oil, slice them really thin. And then everybody around the kitchen counter builds their rice bowls with spicy mayo on, and oh. a really sa- savory dressing with a hundred ingredients in it. It's, that's my go-to for a volume two, I would say. That sounds pretty delicious too. Now this I also suspect is, is going to be a hard question for you. If you were going to be on a desert island, what are the three foods, ingredients, pieces of equipment, whichever way you want to take those, what three things absolutely have to go with you? Well, I'm going to be cheeky and say that on a desert island, I would already have water and salt, right? It's a desert island. Then I'm going to say flour, strong white bread flour. Yep butter and a hot oven yep and there you go you'd have sourdough all day long there you go so you would and and the butter to enjoy with it too absolutely that's my those are my three ingredients i have a friend whose husband used to say never ever stand between a scottish person and the butter dish (laughs) because, because we both slice it and put it on things and another friend another Scottish friend says if you can't see your teeth marks in it you haven't done it properly (laughs) you know uh, you need butter and so completely I understand I'll go back and tell you one butter story which is that my my favorite cat who just sadly left us this this summer used to climb up onto the kitchen counter and lick the butter and when I would get up in the morning I'd see the little tongue marks of my kitty across the tongue butter marks. and I thought she's a cat after my own heart Aww. you know I get it she'd learned she learned yeah I have a I have two dogs and the younger of them knows when she's heard me go for the the tin that has buttering biscuits in it <laughs> you know so like I would have um sourdough crackers or something like that and butter and the butter will come in the winter from the the worktop because if it's in the fridge I can't get as much of it as I want and in the summer would be in the fridge and she knows and from anywhere in the house she'll appear at the side of the unit and she'll be like okay so what kind of biscuits and butter are we having (laughs) and and I think you know sometimes I'm I'm doing something with the biscuit tin, like putting new biscuits in there or something. And I haven't actually thought about having one at that point. And I look round and she's beside me and I think, why are you here? And then I realise the I've reached that tin down and she's heard it. <laughs> so she's a she's a biscuit and butter person. And she's funny because she's not... The other dog would be interested in almost anything that you had in Any the kitchen. Food. But this is the, the thing that attracts her. And she's like, hmm, a biscuit and butter. Oh, so sweet. Mm. <laughs> so it's funny it's good 
It's very good. But thank you. I've really enjoyed this. It's been great just to go through some of those stories with you and just to hear some of the things that you're eating. How do people get hold of your books if they would like, as I'm sure they would, to get hold of some of these recipes? Yes, you go to, we built a sweet little shop and I won't tell you how much trouble it is to build a sweet little shop, but it's online and some (laughs) www.secondhelpings.net. Second helpings, all one word. Brilliant. Yeah, you can get both um, tonight at 7.30 and Second Helpings there. And with all the appetizing recipes and everything, I can't understand why people wouldn't want to. Right. Thank you, Jane. This has been a real delight. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Let me introduce you with Jane Milton. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure you don't miss an episode. Please leave a comment to let us know what you've enjoyed or connect to us on social media at Jane Milton Food. If you found it interesting, please share the details with other food businesses you know. We always love meeting new food businesses. See you next episode. Thank you.